Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's week three of Reformation Month here at uh, Foundation Church. And we celebrate this every year to remember great uh, heroes of our faith who defied convention of the day, who risked their lives so that the Word of God could be put in our hands. That's something to celebrate. Amen. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, he, the greatest man who ever lived, said those of us who followed after him would do greater things than he had done. It almost sounds like it's kind of bad to say that, but Jesus is the one who said it, right? (laughs) Greater things shall you do. How can it be when we understand that we are sinners, we know that these greater things can only be done by the power of the Spirit of God within us. God doesn't need great men, he uses men who believe that he is great. Amen? Now, when we want heroes without feet of clay, when we get this wrong, we can feel overly let down by others and even by ourselves. Remember, history is his story, and that's what it is. It's God's story. It's not ours. There's one hero in the story, and it's not you. Everybody say, it's not me. me. When we suffer... When we do somehow, God says that we somehow share in his glory. David was one of those men, too. You know, his story is filled with all of his failures. It's an amazing thing to have a religion who, whose great heroes, their failures are listed out in the, in the stories. Abraham's faults are listed. Moses' faults are listed. David's are as well. But there's one hero. David was one of those men, and God allowed him to keenly feel the pains of suffering for righteousness. And so in Psalm 69, we will hear his plea to God. That will be our call to worship today. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink deep in mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me, and I am weary of my crying, and my throat is dried, and my eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, that thou mightest know my foolishness, And my sins, they are not hid from me. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. David understood that those even seeking God, he didn't want to be a distraction to them. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I have become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house have eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach me are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my own reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord. 
in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me. In the truth of thy salvation, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before me. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none for the comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and they that should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may see not, and their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecuted him who has not, thou hast not smitten. And they talked to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not written with the righteous. I am poor and I am sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of the God with song and with magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek the Lord. For the Lord heareth the poor, and he despiseth not the prisoners. Let the heavens and the earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it. And they that love his name shall dwell therein. David had a lot to worry about because he was a sinner. But he understood that even in the depths of his sin, he had a Savior just like we do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Lord, we thank you that we know the truth that as we come before you, though our sins be scarlet, you can make them white as wool. Though we have... Uh, come before you with dirty hands, Lord. You can wash us and cleanse us. And we know today as we come before you confessing our sins that that indeed is what you will do. Lord, we also know that we come before you hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And we know that we will not leave this table without being filled. Lord, fill us with spiritual food. Feed us from heaven and change us so that we might be more like you today. In Christ's name, all of your people say amen. standing for me just a little bit I'm just going to read a few verses here from the book of 2nd Corinthians my sermon today is called the good the bad and the ugly it is not Clint Eastwood is nowhere in the sermon so I just thought I'd get that out of the way in case you're a fan and you know the name of that movie but 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 starting in verse 3 but if our gospel be hid it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Christ's sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I think I'm going to read verse 7 again. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side yet not distressed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, 
that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, for giving us another Sunday, another Lord's Day together as your people. Lord, we don't understand why you have chosen us and loved us and called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, but we are so thankful today. Lord, we long to hear your word, to be changed by it. And today we will hear your word in the life of one of your servants. And we pray, Lord, that this epistle read and known of the men of the time of the great reformation will be read and known of us today. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You and I are the jars of clay that Paul talked about here in our text. Those earthen vessels now keeping the treasures of God's light of salvation for the world. It's kind of an amazing thing that God does these amazing and incredible and uh, magnificent things, but He does them through us. God is saving the world, Brother Steve. And He's chosen you and me to do it through. Wow! That should light you up every single day. Because we're so weak, and honestly, the better we know ourselves, the more we know this about ourselves. How many of you, as you get older, get to thinking, you know what, I really am something. Is that, is that happening to you, Andy, as you get older? <laughs> you get older and you start going... I don't know if I'm going to be able to get around like next year. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. My my back gets injured, and I'm thinking that's it. You know, I, I'm done. You know, we forget things. We uh, don't remember uh, people. We are we're not in control of ourselves like we wish that we were. And over and over, our weakness as we get older, we just realize how frail we are because we're so weak. We better understand this, but we often think that God has done his greatest deeds among us through the greatest of us, but that's not true. God doesn't need great people. Over and over, we're reminded of this. We, we, we heard about it in Judges chapter 6, did we not? Gideon, now mighty man of valor. He's, he's, he's hiding down in the wine press, threshing his wheat. He's from the smallest tribe, and he's the most insignificant, and God says, why don't you get up in your might and destroy the amount? He's like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, I mean, he knew how silly it was that God was calling him mighty. But you know, if God calls a man mighty, guess what he is? Ah, he's mighty. Just like when there was no light and God said, let there be light, there was light. And when God looks at a man, he says, Ryan, you are mine. And you're going to do something for me. You go, okay. You know, I got like, you know, my fingernails are dirty and, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I wore this shirt already a couple times this week. I don't know. But okay, God, that's what God does. He uses people. He's not impressed by you. We used to say this early on in our church. God is not impressed by you. But you know what? He's not also he's not depressed by you either. He doesn't look at you and see how bad off you are and go, man, this is all I got to work with. God doesn't need greatness. He doesn't need your strength. You know, it, it's like, uh, you know, Liam helping me, thinking he's helping me carry the refrigerator. He's, he's really not. He thinks he is. He's, you know, he's got his hand on it, but he's just not carrying that refrigerator. Now, I have stood quietly for a moment or two trying to connect with the idea of the good pastor of Pilgrim's and writer of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, I, I went to go over there to Bedford, England, and I remember standing behind his pulpit, Andy, and touching it and going, his hands touched right here. You know, I think, you know who would have laughed more than anybody about that? Him. He's like, yeah, oh yeah, I did. I touched that pulpit, you know. There might be something underneath it stuck on there that I left, you know. I went to Edinburgh, Scotland, and I saw where John Knox thundered the word of God and he warned a wayward nation of the coming wrath of God. And I thought, wow, John Knox stood here. I stood with reverence over the graves of David Livingston in London, where just a few feet away were the two of my great heroes, Isaac Newton and Michael Faraday, wondering what they were like when they dared believe that God would reveal the secrets of science to them. I, I remember reading the book Michael Faraday and, and hearing how he was so poor he couldn't even buy candles. 
And he bought, and, he, and he, all his money he saved up, Derek, was to buy these candles so he could work at night with this little deal. And you know what he did? He discovered the technology that made the combustion engine and was one of the greatest scientists of all. But you know, at the core of his life, he loved Christ and he was looking for the face of God in the numbers and in the science. A couple of years ago, our family made a pilgrimage to Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston to see a monument erected to the great mathematician and navigator Nathaniel Bowditch. And I will no doubt stand before one day, you'll see, if, you, if I live long enough and God lets me live, I'll stand by the wooden door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany and I'll run my hand over that thing, Andy, hoping that my finger will touch the nail hole, the very nail hole that Martin Luther drove in the, 95, the nail that held the 95 Thesis on that door in 1531. That's why in, in 1517 on October the 31st, about 502 years ago, it's also my hope that one day to look out the window from the small little room in Sodbury Manor in Bristol, England, where William Tyndale wrote the Bible in the English language. Wouldn't that be great? But you know, when you read their stories, you're going to find out this. You know, he was at the little Sodbury Manor because he got a job there. He gets hired by this guy named Sir John, and he goes and he lives there, and he is the pastor to Sir John's little children and his wife. That's it. That's their whole congregation, one family. He's there, and he's a hired preacher in this little, uh, this little chapel at the back of his house, and he's preaching every Sunday to his wife and two children. That, that was his big job, Brian. Isn't that great? But while he was there, he did something, you know, kind of important. He translated the Bible in the English language, the one that we read every Sunday. You're reading words from this man. Now, these are all wonderful and, and contemplative journeys for me, you know, but my trip to Israel, well, that kind of eclipsed them all, right? You know, to stand where... Uh, this apostle and that apostle and Jesus and John the Baptist and, and Elijah and the, you know, all of that. I mean, that, but it seems like the further away we get in history and time, we believe the men were actually greater. You know, we know more about Martin Luther and we know more about Tyndale and, and their weaknesses and frailties, but we know absolutely nothing about, you know, what a wretch John the Baptist was to, to hang out with sometimes and how grumpy he got once in a while. We like to believe that, that you know, somehow there was a, a glow around him like the painters used to paint. That somehow he was almost just not quite to the ground like I used to believe Anna did. Where, where is she at? Where is she at? <laughs> now today on this third, third week of Reformation, I want to remind us of all of three 16th century guys. But they were just guys. But now I'm telling when I when I get done telling you about this one, you may think that he was something. But I'm telling you, he knew better than all of us that he wasn't. And their lives were forever fused together in their fiery deaths in Oxford, England. And they're kind of the uh, the big story in Fox's Book of Martyrs that really, really set the church on fire in the 16th century. Their names were Nicholas Ridley. Everybody say Nicholas Ridley. Nicholas Ridley. Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer. And Thomas Cranmer. Thomas now, you know, when I have studied about this and talked about this, I always put Thomas Cranmer first because he's my favorite. But, you know, really, honestly, he should go last. Because he's, he's the biggest stinker of them all. And he's also, you know, God takes people who really, really have a lot of troubles. And he does wonderful things. And this guy did some wonderful things, but the things he did, I think if you did them, I think you'd have a hard time living with yourself. Just like David. You know, we were reading about David from Psalm 69, and he said, you know what? I became a proverb. I became a song of the drunkards. What do you, what do you think they were singing about? David, he kills his wife. Yeah. But doesn't his baby die because he's a bad guy? I mean, I don't know. David, he doesn't do what he should with his children. And they get killed and they rape their sisters. I'm saying it's terrible, right? He was a proverb, a song of the drunkards. He said, God, the things that I've done in my life have given your enemies occasion 
to blaspheme against you. Oh God, deliver me from me. I'm telling you, that's a huge message. And if you're going to get anything out of today's message, you should get that. God, deliver me from me. What I want, Lord, the world to see is not me, but I want them to see you in me. And if seeing you in me is like the story we're about to hear of Thomas Cranmer, then let it be. Because God's great light is shown more in this man's life because of his own personal darkness. He would have never came to the point that he will come to shortly had he not been a sinner like all of us. They're known together as the Oxford Martyrs. In England in 1555, they were all three convicted of heresy. And they were all burned at the stake for their insistence on following God's word. But you see, the real part of the story is that one of them wasn't burned with the other two. He figured out a way to get out of it. He figured out a way to say, well, you know, what I really said and what I really believe isn't exactly all of that. And he watched his friends die standing up for the truth, but he himself would not. And he tried to save himself. What does the Bible say? He that tries to save his life will lose it. And you know what he did? He lost it anyway. But in the losing of his life, we'll see that he found it. Because he finally, you know... He's that last hour guy. He's the guy in the last hour. He did it wrong. He put himself first. He didn't lay down his life for others. He really didn't. But in the end, he realized what I, the life I had lived unto myself was a life I repudiate. The glorious tapestry of the bright threaded stories given to us here about the Oxford martyrs give us a keyhole look into a very tumultuous time and inspiring where God was judging the church and correcting her. How many of you think that we're headed in a time where God's going to judge the church? Oh, I'm certain he is. And will we be a part of it? We probably will. Israel, when Israel got judged, even the people that weren't doing bad ended up getting caught up in the judgment. And I'm sure we will too. We have a church that doesn't preach the word of God. Who gets up in patty cakes and tells little stories and does ditties. And tries to live like the world. That's the world we live in right now. They don't, they don't revere and fear God at all. They don't know it. The Bible says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I will reject you and your children. You will see that people. That the church. The people that you thought. We're, we're watching them fall by the wayside. One after the other. And judgment is coming. Why? Well because. Because Christians kill their babies. At abortion mills. Do you know if they didn't do that, there wouldn't be abortion mills? Because Christians allow filth and sin to go on in their congregations and they do nothing about it whatsoever. God's word said we're supposed to get this out of our congregation. We're supposed to do these things. If the, if the house of God will not judge itself, it will be what? Judged of God. How many of you would rather judge yourself so you were not judged of God? I would. I would. God says, if you don't judge yourself, do you know that God is a consuming fire? Here in the pages of these three once living epistles, we learn much of how God uses fragile jars of clay as standard bearers of the kingdom of God. And hopefully you'll begin to see how God can use you, despite how weak and beggarly you find yourself. To set the stage, we need to remember that this time in which they lived and the part that they played uh, it's important to know it's called the, the time of the great Protestant Reformation. If you don't know your history, it's worth learning. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Amen? Amen? Now, as we know, the church was born in a far off corner of the Roman Empire in the Middle East. The way it looked at the time was that this new cult had formed among the conquered Jews, among a few dissidents of this mighty an important empire and certainly nothing going on in this little outpost really mattered their leader Jesus of Nazareth who had done a lot of miracles they had said had risen from the dead had people that had died he had multiplied loaves and fishes he had done a lot of things he had even walked on the water they said but now now he was dead he had been killed by the Romans and in fact, every member of his new sect eventually was tortured and killed. Now, some say he rose from the dead, but that's probably just a story. That's what people thought at the time. 
Hope for this new faith seemed non-existence because even the very leaders were denying him and, and running away and, and, and eventually they were killed too. But what do we know about what happened through all that? We know that against all man-centered hope, Christianity had in 1,500 years conquered not only the entire Roman Empire, it had become the state religion for most of the world. Yeah. Its leaders, though, had come a long way from the vile treatment of the likes of Nero and Diocletian, and now they presided not just over Rome, but over all the kings and the powers of the civilized world. Rome was no longer the Roman Empire. It was what? It was the holy Roman Empire. Inasmuch as rain is a good thing, the great blessing was too much of a good thing, it seemed. The blessing of power became a flood, a storm that rained down wealth and power to the new queen of the earth and tempted her. Many of her leaders were enticed to go astray and from her true king. A new king, the pope and his court led the church into the corruption and greed and on the backs of the poor and through legislated extortion, the church amassed incalculable wealth. It's kind of a bittersweet if you go through Europe and you visit these beautiful, beautiful cathedrals. There's a sadness that's in my heart because people were dying and starving and being mistreated while they were taking money from them to build those massive edifices. Building high spire cathedrals and even entire cities as monuments to themselves while much of the world around them languished in poverty. Church leaders descended to the depths of depravity, rivaled only by the emperors that had tormented the church in early years. It seemed like all that the church had, had gained would be lost again, like the first queen of the world, Eve, had lost Eden. But guess what, guys? She wasn't married to Adam. Amen? This one was married to Jesus, okay? Her king was not Adam. He was the Lord triumphant in battle. The Lord of hosts. Adam couldn't save Eve, but let me tell you what. Jesus can save the church. Amen? Amen. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the Savior of the world. One who can never die. Like Him, His new creation, the church, had the power like Him to raise from the dead. Many times in history, the church would need the power, this power, and use it. And if you see history of the church, you'll see that the church lives and the church dies and the church is resurrected over and over again. Once again, through power and humility and poverty, the poor in spirit, the meek would conquer and would inherit the world. Not through the greatness of their lives, but through the power of their righteous deaths. Not through the might of their hands, but with the blood and humiliation that would stream down their bodies. The power of the church's resurrection would be seen throughout the world again. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer were three among a countless host of others whose names will only be known to us in heaven. Those who were among those who in our text reads, they bear about the dying of the Lord Jesus that his life might be manifest. If you think this is only figurative, then you miss the import of the scripture. God literally calls us to die. He calls us to be burned at the stake. He calls us to hang on crosses. He calls us to be beheaded for the gospel, not just figuratively to die. You know, you might want your fingernails painted uh, yellow, but all you have is red on hand. On hand. A black stone Victorian monument that greets the goers into the city of Oxford the intellectual capital of the world for generations stands as a reminder to these three men and their story. And this story is a story of the resurrection, of their own resurrections from depravity. Today, tourists, uh, locals, students eat their lunches on the steps. We saw this when we went there, my wife and I did, and, and they were sitting there and most of them had no idea where they were even sitting. I asked them what they were sitting under. They're like, I don't know. But this monument, this high spire monument stands in Oxford dedicated to the story that I'm about to tell you. Not far down the street and around the corner from the monument, there's a few bricks that form an X or a crude cross in the street where these three men were burned alive. Few notice this hallowed ground and fewer still appreciate its meaning, but I pray the people of Foundation Church will never forget it. God used a unique set of circumstances and people to bring about the English Reformation. As we have named three bishops, let us, the three bishops being Ridley and Latimer and Cranmer, let us name three monarchs also tied with their story. Henry VIII, you probably heard of him, right? Uh, 
Edward VI, you may never have heard of him. He only lived a little while. He was a little boy king. And, but his sister Mary, everybody knows about Bloody Mary, Mary I. They were all of one house, the house of Tudor. England's King Henry VIII reigned for nearly 60 years, and he was a horribly ungodly man, to say the least. He was married six times and was known to have numerous mistresses besides. His ungodliness went to great heights. Not only did he persist in his ungodliness, but he wanted the approval of the church in his ungodly deeds. And guess what the church was willing to do? Give it to him. I won't go into all the particulars here, but I will touch on a few things to help you understand and remember the story of the Oxford Martyrs. First off, when Henry VIII wanted a divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, because she would not give him a son, a male heir, he wanted the stamp of approval of the church, so he sent to uh, the Pope, but they wouldn't do it. The Roman Catholic Church would not give him what he wanted. He was used to power, and he used it to separate the churches of his realm in England to what, <clears throat> from what it was called the Holy Catholic Church or the Holy See at the time. And when they did this, they formed the Church of England. Now, for this we are happy, but honestly, if you look back at your history, you can't be real happy about the circumstances. You can't look at it and go, you know, this was done for all the right reasons. No, it wasn't. It was done so a man could have a divorce and a church would give him permission and the church he formed, the Church of England, gave it to him. He wanted this approval, but when they wouldn't give it to him, he started the church. When he did this, he formed the Church of England. Now, we're thankful that he did this, uh, but it's kind of like Samson. We're glad that Samson took the jawbone of an ass and killed all those Philistines. We're glad that he picked up their gates, and we're glad that he set their fields on fire. But if you really read the story, you're not really glad why he did it, right? He did it because he was a vile, ungodly, disrespectful man. This new church, also referred to as the Anglican Church of today, he put himself at the very head of it. Henry VIII was the head of it. God used his obstinacy to separate England from the Roman Empire and him from the power of the Pope in Rome. That's right, there was still a Roman Empire at the time, led by Clement V. Catherine of Aragon was able to bear Henry VIII, a daughter, in the midst of all of this. Little Mary would be her only child that lived. And her separation from her mother, her separation from her family, really brought about some horrible, wicked things. That's why we know her as Bloody Mary. The church actually is responsible for making this woman the anger-filled, vile woman that she was because they did not love her. She would have her own half-sister, Lady Jane Grey, beheaded and nearly 280 reformers within the Church of England burned at the stake. That's why you know Bloody Mary's story. But before all this, while he was still alive, King Henry wanted a divorce, and since Rome would not allow it, he made the way for the church. Now, the leaders of the new church would grant him permission, and one of the leaders of the church that granted him permission was a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Everybody say, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas. Believe it or not, he's a hero of our story. He uh, gave Henry VIII permission to get a divorce because she, didn't get, she wouldn't give him a male heir. Henry VIII's membership in the Church of England though allowed him to ignore his excommunication from Rome. People do this all the time. They, they get church rules and they think somehow this is going to get them out of the mess that they're actually in with God. His new bishop, Thomas Cranmer, contrary to the word of God, approved this divorce. And then Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, was deeply influenced by these reformers that were all around. And she actually really, really was responsible for a lot of good that got done. He married this woman simply because it was politically expedient. And, uh, but she happened to be converted to Christ. And so now we have this evil king, his second wife, uh, Anne Boleyn, she's this Christian woman, um, but when she had children, her first child was a little girl, and this did not make things very happy for her, and, uh, but it made it happy for the world because this is, her little daughter was named Elizabeth, and she would end up becoming the great 
Queen Elizabeth, who reigned as a good Christian, godly woman for many years. Anne, however, was unable to give Henry the son he always wanted. Some say she miscarried on Christmas Day in 1534, and again two years later on the day of the funeral of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and they saw this as God's judgment upon them, which it would be. Here she is married to a man who was really still married. Here she was, even though she was a Christian woman, she was still being a part of this man's ungodly sin. She had made herself one with a man who was an ungodly man. After their divorce, Catherine had been confined without being able to see or communicate with her little daughter Mary. Even though she uh, was treated and mistreated this way and locked actually in a castle for a long time, she forgave Henry and begged for mercy for her daughter Mary in her dying letter. But did Henry offer any mercy to little Mary? No. Henry's desire for a male heir heightened and he began to feel God was punishing him for what he had done. Well, he was. And instead of Stephen in repenting, this would have been his chance to repent, right? Instead of repenting, what did he do? He had Anne Boleyn investigated for high treason. And she was executed. The bishop who had approved the marriage to Anne tried unsuccessfully to stop it, but he could not. Years after her death, Anne was listed as one of the, mar the first martyrs of the English Reformation. But then Mary... Then Henry married his third wife, his third wife, Jane Grey. She would give him the son who would be king when he died. The boy's name was Edward, and later he would be crowned Edward VI, King of England. All of these strange and obviously sinful practices, Henry was somehow had the approval of the church. That wasn't so hard, right? He was the head of the church. In fact, the family of Anne Boleyn had influenced the appointment of this very archbishop, this Thomas Cranmer, he was friends of the family, but he didn't even protect Anne Boleyn. This man who actually is one of my very favorite figures in the English Reformation, this man, again, is Thomas Cranmer. What a bad guy. I mean, really? This is, this is horrible. And what he does is even worse. Thomas Cranfer, now note the spelling, it's not Kramer, it's Cranmer, R-A-N-M-E-R. He served the church and the king of England, Henry VIII, and Edward VI, and finally under uh, Queen Mary. He was born in 1489, and uh, just three years before Christopher Columbus sailed his famous voyage, his parents were not really important at all, but he excelled in his studies, and... Um, his father died when he was only 12 years old. They sent him to Cambridge. And uh, in uh, a number of years, he was as high as he could get on the scale of his academics. He got married briefly, but his wife died. They weren't going to let him become a priest, but his family allowed him to have, uh, allowed him to get in the ministry anyway. And uh, a year later, uh, after he was received back into the school, he, uh, Henry VIII, uh, he, they met and they became friends. Now, how in the world do you become friends with a guy like Henry VIII who's killing people and treating people bad and putting himself over the head of the church? I don't really know, but he was. Sadly, it was Cranmer who helped build the case for his annulments. He, only, he also built a theological case. He wrote it out for the king being the head of the church. Now, guys, you really can't do that. There isn't any biblical justification for that. But he was so good that he figured out how to do that. Cranmer signed the papers of Henry's ungodly divorce, crowned Anne Boleyn, handed her her scepter, baptized little Elizabeth, who would be queen. So he's doing these things. He's done all this. He's at the heart of all that made Henry VIII a bad guy. He was at the heart of giving him permission to do it all. But he's also the man who wrote some of the most beautiful Christian writings ever read. In fact, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard, have you ever heard, Dearly Beloved, we gather here in the sight of God in the presence of this witnesses to join together? That's Thomas Cranmer from the English Book of Common Prayer. He also wrote the 39 articles, which would be the statement of faith for the Church of England. And if you haven't read those and you read them today, you should be awestruck at the beauty of them. We would disagree with hardly any of it. And yet... The man who penned them was allowing ungodliness rampant where he had the power to stop it. 
He was a genius in so many ways and he was a powerhouse in God's kingdom even if he was obviously weak in many others. It seemed as God used Cranmer to do so much good. He was embroiled in politics and ungodly justification of the sins of his monarch. Perhaps he was pragmatic. Folks, you want to find an enemy to Christianity, it's pragmatism. It's where we say this needs to be done. And whatever it takes to get it done, we're going to do that. We're going to justify the end. We're going to justify the means by what we accomplish in the end. We should never be this. Perhaps in his heart had not even been changed by God at this time. Who knows? Nonetheless, Cranmer was used by God. He was knee-deep in guilt. So many of the public sins of his time, and no doubt private ones as well. As I reached, researched this story, he was certainly not the heroic reformer I had imagined because I had only read the end of his story. As I read this part of his story, I kind of thought, how can I tell this, Steve, without telling the church? Because really, I don't want to tell them all about this. I just want to tell them about how it ends. Because that's great. But honestly, the true story that God is telling through his life, this is part of every bit of it. Truth is most great men that I read about and learn about, and most of them that I know, are not really as great or as spotless as I hope they would be. Their stories were not as black and white and easy to tell as I would like them, but there's always more than we know to any story. God's Word tells us in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know, if we say that our heroes weren't sinners, we're deceiving ourselves as well. Our heroes are no different, whether on the battlefields of human conflict or in the matters of the church. They're the same. They're all sinners saved by grace. And we, like the last part of that statement, we love it. That we are saved by grace, but none of us like the beginning part, right? That we're sinners. Henry VIII, as I read, the story from Cranmer's perspective was more like a tortured believer than a brutish heathen. Over and over, God judged his sins. He was tormented by them. Uh, the death and judgment God wrought in his life bore out might have been seen as God judging his own. Wouldn't it be something if Henry VIII, after all of his nastiness, we meet him in heaven and he goes, wasn't I a horrible wretch? You might go, well, that's not probable. <laughs> I think if some of you are going to make it, you might want to hope for that. Few of us here would imagine that Henry VIII is a Christian, but we'll know one day. When I was young, it was so much more simple in my mind. Good people do good, and bad people do bad. That's how we know. The bad ones are going to hell, and the good ones are going to heaven. All right? Isn't that how it works? I hope not. For your sake. I mean, and mine too, of course. <laughs> Reading the account of the death of Henry VIII, it seems that during this death, Cranmer was there. He was on hand. He was watching him go through his death throes. And in the middle of his death, Cranmer cries out and shouts out to God that sounds something a whole lot more like a Christian than anything he said thus far in his life. He cries out a confession that, oh, God, save me, you know, save this king. Maybe this was the day God saved Thomas Cranmer. When Henry's nine-year-old son, Edward, became Edward VI, king of England, Cranmer was able to promote major reforms in the church while the child king rubber-stamped all that he did. He wrote at this time and compiled the two editions of the Book of Common Prayer, a complete liturgy for the English church. With the assistance of the continental reformers to whom he gave refuge, he changed the doctrine of the church in areas such as communion, uh, clerical celibacy, the role that images would play in the church, and the veneration of saints. Cranmer promulgated the new doctrines through his Book of Prayer and a Book of Homilies that he wrote. He did all of this and none of this was short, really, of amazing. He wrote many other things, but he was no, no less than amazing in church history as Athanasius and of Augustine when it comes to his influence in church doctrine. It was this, at this time, he began filling the highest and best positions of the church with godly men. He thought this would be the way to change it. I'll just, I'll put people in that I want, and then I'll be able to do whatever I want. But God had another plan. 
Yes, fill the rolls with all these because I'm about to bring a queen who's going to burn them all alive. Wouldn't have wanted to fill all of the posts with the best guys then, would you? He didn't know that was going to happen. Little Edward only lived and reigned until the age of 15 when he became sick of tuberculosis and he died. But before he died, he declared Lady Jane Grey queen in hopes that England would stay Protestant, knowing that his half-sister Mary had not only become bitter and angry toward her family, but she had embraced Roman Catholicism. Wonder why? Her heathen, ungodly, fornicating father formed the Church of England? Would you want to go to it? I wouldn't want to go to it. And, and, and we look at her as this evil villain, but what is she doing? But saying, hey, this, my dad was ungodly. Everything he did was ungodly. And I'm going to stop it. That's what she did. We see her as this villain, but she may have seen herself as a hero. Mary formed a band of support. And in nine days later, after, the, after Lady Jane Grey became queen, she lost her head. She was dead. After Mary took the throne, Cranmer was soon put on trial. I wonder why? You approved the divorce of my mother? You were behind all of this foolishness and insanity? And so she put him on trial for heresy. She imprisoned him for over two years under pressure from church authorities. And during this time, you know what he did? He said, I know you think I believe all that stuff, but I just wrote it all down for Henry. I, this salvation by grace stuff. You know, it's really overrated, and, and really, I believe in the doctrines of the church. When this wasn't enough, uh, he's, he's, he, 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 he says, you know, I could even write it down. And so he writes this magnificent treaty on how the church is supreme over the Word of God and, and how salvation is not by grace, and, and he writes all this stuff down. This great man that, I am, that he's a hero, he's doing all this stuff. Among these reformers, there were some other guys, too. Their names are, as I mentioned before, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley. Now, these guys, I'm sure, if I had more information, I'm sure they were sinners, too, but you can't find much evidence of it. They were some, they were some pretty beautiful men. Nicholas Ridley had become the English Bishop of London, also known the Bishop of Westminster. Ridley uh, was from a prominent family, um, and for his entire life, he served the Lord. He uh, studied. He wanted to know God's word and he wanted to teach it. He wanted God's word to be in the language that people could read it. He, he argued the bishop of Rome had no more authority of jurisdiction derived to him from God in this kingdom of England than any other foreign bishop. He wrote against the Catholic Church. He wrote against the heresies of the Catholic Church. Thomas Cranmer thought he was a good guy and he promoted him he was made one of the chaplains for the king he became a you know an important guy and he along with uh, Thomas Cranmer was once Mary came into her queendom um, accused of heresy but he was able to beat his charge Ridley was appointed uh, the Bishop of London, but soon after that, when the king had died, he was ordered uh, he was ordered to come to jail, and he did. And, and so he's there. Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer are all there in prison together. I have a really, really long thing, and I'm trying to make it not go so long. I'm sorry, guys. Hugh Latimer, though, was an old man at this time had an early start learning about the things of God and it was really Latimer his name is not as well known but his preaching they say is really what set all of England ablaze with the power and the truth of the great uh, salvation by grace alone through faith and that not of our own works something he wrote here uh, I want to read for you he, this is what Latimer wrote he said the or it was said about Latimer here, and this is in Britannica. You can read it right over in your encyclopedia. It's Latimer more than the edicts of Henry established the principles of the Reformation in the minds and hearts of the people. And from his preaching, the movement received its chief color and complexion. The sermons of Latimer possess a combination of qualities which constitute them 
unique examples and of the species of literature. It's po it is possible to learn from the more regarding and social political condition of the period than from any other source, for they abound not only in exposures of religious abuses, but prevailing corruptions of society. He said that that his um, that not only did his sermons, but his life actually transformed the minds of people to see what a Christian leader could be like. And so in April of 1554, there was a trial. Latimer was so old at the time, he was hardly able even to respond. And so he did it in writing. And here's what he said. He said, he said I am of this faith. When you say this, you say well. I have said that the scriptures for them, I am of their faith. And there further Augustine requires, I believe that salvation is by grace alone and, and through faith. He believed that the welfare of souls demanded the stand of the Protestant understanding of the gospel. The commissioners understood the debate involved the message of salvation itself. And he said this, he said, I thank God most heartily that he hath prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death to which the prolu the pro prolucator, it must be a word they use a lot there. If you go to heaven in this faith, then I will never come hither as I am thus persuaded. Never was a man more free than Latimer from the taint of fanaticism and less dominated by vainglory. But the motives to which now inspired his course not only placed him beyond the influence of fear, but enabled him to taste in dying its inevitable thrill of victorious achievement. So these three men are all together, Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer. And Cranmer is about to, to totally throw them under the bus and recant, but not Nicholas, Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. Ridley greets his friend who has not recanted. Uh, and uh, he says, Master Ridley, be of comfort. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust it shall never be put out. He knew they were going to literally burn him alive. And he saw it as a candle being lit to expel the darkness. He received the flame and as if he were embracing it, one person looked on said. He actually reached out to the flame and then pulled it out and kind of stroked his face with it and said, Oh Lord, take me. And it was shocking to the people there. It said that with very little apparent pain, he died as this a man who had just fallen asleep as he was burned alive. He did not cry out. But Cranmer did. He watched. He watched them die, knowing that he had recanted to save his own, he thought. He wrote this letter to extend his life for several months. But the last recantation was on March the 18th. It was... The sign of a broken man, a sweeping confession of sin, despite the stipulation in the law that recanting heretics be reprieved, Mary was determined to make an example. I went to the very chapel where this happened. He, he's, he, there's a, a piece of wood that comes out of this stone wall and he stood on it and he thought, you know what, right? He said, I'm going to recant and certainly they will save me alive. The law said that Mary had to, but you know what Mary did? He said, no, I don't believe any of it. And Mary said... Glad to hear you say it one more time. Now take him and burn him. He was unable to save his life. He asked if he could speak for a few minutes before they burned him alive. And so they gave him permission. And because he had recanted over and over and over, they figured he would do the same. And he began unexpectedly to change his speech. He said, as for the Pope, he said, I refuse him. He is Christ's enemy. He is Antichrist. They pulled him away from the pulpit. They thought, oh, no, wait, wait a minute. You know, he, he's gone off script. We thought he would just keep recanting all the way to the fire in hopes that they would save him. But he knew at this point, no. At this point, they went and they tied him to a post. And the, the place is marked on the ground. Uh, with, with an X on the bricks and you can go to there this place to this day and and they tied him to a post there they begin to pile and they were trying to get these uh, sticks around him as fast as they could because they wanted him to shut up and and he's going oh no he goes he goes come on and so now he's his heart has changed he sees that he's going to die and in the very last few minutes before his death oftentimes they would strangle them before 
uh, they would burn them so that they would have no way of continuing to talk. But he began to talk. He said, you know, he said, in my life I've sinned. And he began to talk about all of his sins. He's confessing his sins. And he says, and all of that I've done in my life has been nothing like what I've done with this hand. And he holds out his hand. And with this hand, I have denied that salvation is through grace alone and by grace alone through faith. With this hand, I have said that I don't trust in Christ and his word more than the church. And with this hand, and, he, and, and they're trying and they're lighting the fire. And they're, they're like, we got to get this guy to shut up. And they're, they're starting, but they're having trouble getting the fire going. With this hand, and, we, and, and no one understood what he meant. He kept saying, with this hand, I wrote things that aren't true. With this hand, I denied Christ. With this hand. And they were wondering what was going to happen next. But as the flames began to lift up, he took his hand and he put it into the fire. And he held it over the fire until the fire burned his hand off. And he did not pull back from the flames. With this hand. And he held it out. And he kept holding it out until the flames overtook him completely and burned him alive. In that moment, the people that were nearby could not imagine that anything could make a man be able... Could you hold your hand on a, on a match? If it was burning the end of your finger, you, you would recoil. But he held it out until his hand literally burnt off. This is what makes him a hero to me. He lived his whole life. God used him, but he was weak. But even in the, in the very end, he realized that what he had done was so wrong. I don't think he was looking for absolution through an act of penance here. I think he really, truly saw for the first time in his life the wretchedness of his own sin. Oh, may that happen to all of us today. May we see the wretchedness of our own sin and the gloriousness of, of the light of the gospel of Christ. Amen. And in that moment, even though it was a year later, he was still fused in death with his friends. And I'm sure in heaven when they welcomed him, they did not say, what took you so long, you know? We died a long time ago for our faith. I bet you they embraced him with love and forgiveness and mercy. And he came to heaven knowing who the hero of the faith was. And it wasn't Nicholas Ridley. It wasn't Hugh Latimer. And it's not Thomas Cranmer. But it was Christ alone. Through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen. I will read the last, I'll read this verse for us one more time that I begin with. Listen to it with this thought in mind. The thought of what, how Nicholas Ridley, how Thomas Cranmer, and how Hugh Latimer gave their lives for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2, my text, I'll read it again. But if the gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I guarantee you when those flames came up, it was the face of Christ that he longed to see more than any other face. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of God may be in God and not in us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that our life also may be manifest in his. Amen. May that be our prayer today. May that we pray that the life of Christ is manifest in our every day. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us this great treasure. Thank you for making us keenly aware that this treasure is in an earthen vessel. May we not despise it but be thankful to you for giving it to us even in these vessels. Lord, may we give our bodies today living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto you. May we realize that this clay vessel that you've given is not our own anymore, that we have been bought with a price, that we will glorify God in our bodies, even these bodies that are clay and flawed. We give them to you, Lord. We know that we're not giving you anything precious. We're just giving you all we have. Take it, Lord, and make us something beautiful for your glory as you did Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer,
and Nicholas Ridley, the Oxford Martyrs. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.